Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Hello, a slight change this week. We're not doing a, a complete royal story, but we are going to talk with Di Davis at the beginning, uh, giving his points of view on the Diana murder. We are think- in a, another perhaps reckless experiment with our format. We're going to have two guests this week. Um, and as, uh, as Andrew said, the first one is, um, well, we did this weighty tome a few weeks ago. How they murdered Diana. I, mean, I think it's fair to say that not everybody agrees with this thesis. And one of the people who doesn't agree is a previous guest who was the head of royal security and he got back in touch. And um, we're going to, have to be talking to him in a minute. And then after that, we're going to be talking. Well, you should introduce the sort of the main course of the of this particular. Well, the main course the is is uh, uh, we're talking to Adam Sisman, who's just published a second book on John le Carre. His first is was the Authorized Life. Um, but there was much in the authorised life he couldn't write about uh, while John le Carre and his wife were alive. And he's just done another book, which I think is a fascinating account, not just of, of le Carre's love life, but actually of the problems biographers have in their relationship with uh, particularly living subjects and family uh, and how far the, the private life intrudes on the public life and how important it is, which is a subject which interests me. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him. He's a very good biographer, very wide-ranging, uh, and uh, I'm sure he'll have some very interesting things to say. Good. Well, uh, an absolutely jam-packed episode. I think we should start, though, uh, with a little bit of boasting. This has been, if not our best week ever, probably our second best week. Um, I keep my eye on the data. Um, and um, the show we did with uh, Lady Colin Campbell it's already got 8,000 views on YouTube, but it's also brought a lot of new people. I'm going to mention a few of them by name in a minute. Um, so overall, I think we had 11,000 views. That's just on the YouTube. Um, that doesn't count the people who are listening. So thank you. If you're one of those new people who found us, uh, please hang around and please stay. Um, we have lots of good stuff coming up. I think we're hoping to talk to Richard Kay next week, who is probably the most respected royal journalist in Britain. Yeah, yeah. Very we're close not, relationship. We're not done with the royals yet. We are not done with them yet. Well, you seem to like royals, so we'll keep coming back to them. Let me, uh, do you want to hear some comments? Yeah. Okay. A newbie here, Christina Coates, who's found us through the Lady Colin Campbell show. She's really enjoying everything that we're doing. Uh, Jay Taylor as well. Um, Jeet Ducam. Uh, I'm guessing maybe French. Maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong. Iona Marilyn. Maybe that's Marilyn Iona. And this one I love. You know, the other day somebody said you were dishy. And now they say you dishy. Oh well, maybe they said we were both dishy. <laughs> um, this is the best, the best um, compliment you'll ever get in your career. Um, Robert Smuggles six eight seven one says most royal biographers are like hagfish, a slimy marine fish that specialises in sucking the, the, the fluids from living creatures. But Andrew Lodi is no hagfish. His books are based on facts, not innuendo and prejudice. 
There you are. Oh, thank you. That's very, thank you very much, Robert. Yes, I try. Try hard. Um, actually, somebody else has pointed out that we seem to have the same name now. And if you've noticed, our personalities have melded. So on yes. um, Zoom, we have the same name. Um, this is because we used to go on and on about how mean we were. Uh, we couldn't afford a professional a Zoom account. And then guess what? It turned out Andrew had one all the time. Well, I, no, I bought one. I bought one. I you felt sorry for the fact we were only doing 40 minutes. Okay, well, you have to offset that against the many, many thousands of pounds we'll be earning a week anytime soon. <laughs> okay, enough showing off. Shall we give the people what they want? Yes, I think I, I can't wait to hear what Di has to say. Yeah, so we're going to talk to Di, and then straight after that, we're going to go into this longer interview on Le Carre. And if obviously, if you're not interested in, in, um, in Diana's murder, it's very easy to just skip forward to part two. But let's hope you enjoy it all. See you later. Excellent. See you next week. Di, welcome back. Well, thank you. So soon. Well, we we thought you may have some thoughts on this work that we discussed last yes, week. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I and, certainly uh, have, having given hundreds of lectures on the very subject of the death of Diana. Um, I, I listened with interest, and I respect everybody's point of view. Uh, but as I said to you privately, you know what I think of what he said. Yeah, I mean, I think we were both pretty sceptical. Um, there are some areas where I felt he, he said things that seemed quite intriguing, plausible. Maybe you can shoot them down. I mean, the one about right. MI6 activity in Paris, does that not look a little suspicious? Absolutely not. Uh, there were two officers actually uh, in Paris at the embassy at that time. And as I understood, both were away with their families having a break that weekend. Uh, so, no, uh, I don't find it suspicious that MI6 have a presence in France. Uh, what I do find fatuous is the fact that anybody would think that uh, His Royal Highness, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, could persuade so many people in so many different outfits to actually uh, come together to conspire. And we can talk more about that. But no, um, nothing that MI6 did or the two operatives that I know of and what they did do that weekend causes me any concern at all. Uh, and what about some of the questions, for example, about changing testimony, um, Henri having unexplained sums of money uh, and blood samples? I mean, you know, there were quite a series of, of points that were made. Well, we have to go back to actually who made them. And if we go back to it was Mohammed Fayed. And the first thing he said was that uh, Prince Philip, a German Nazi murdered Diana. So that's the bedrock on which all these conspiracies and other factors lie on. So uh, if we actually take it uh, apart, as it were, he made over 178 different allegations. And according to two independent investigations, not one of them actually was proven. And in fact, his head of security, a former colleague of mine, was actually proved to be a liar when he was tested uh, at the inquest. So I take all of these with a huge pinch of salt. Now, in terms of Henri didn't Paul the inquest, and his money... Sorry to interrupt, but didn't the inquest rule that they'd been unlawfully killed? Unlawfully killed by a drunken driver. Right. By a drunken driver. Because to drive when you've got three and a half times the legal limit in you in France is illegal, and it would be the same in this country, which would be twice over. And let's deal with that. Three separate samples were taken in respect of Henri Paul. And uh, two of them were witnessed by the head of the then criminal department, also by a pathologist. And they were tested and tested. And they were found to have always the same amount of alcohol in them. He wasn't drunk because it's alleged or he was an alcoholic. And when I give a lecture on a cruise ship, I always challenge sometimes up to a thousand people in that audience to challenge me if they buy me a litre of wine. And having been drinking since I was about 14 years of age, I can assure you I can do my shoelaces having drunk a litre of wine. I'm not drunk, but I can do it. And I've proven it to people, particularly if they buy the litre of wine. <laughs> so, no, there's ineffutable that's the right word on a Monday morning, evidence to show that independent analysis were taken and each time they showed that he, it, he, the blood was taken from him 
And, and I, I believe that unless you again go to the conspiracy that all these people uh, conspired to swap samples. I, I just, as I say, now as a, an investigator who's investigated crimes, you look at motive, you look at, look at opportunity, and then the suspect, who are they capable? And I've looked at this now for what, 12, 14, 15 years, however long it is now, uh, fairly seriously. And I've stood the test because I've done this, as I said, 150 times to varying audience from a thousand to three or four. And I, I challenge anyone to come up with new evidence. And I've heard nothing, including your uh, gentleman that was on your show, that proved anything new. Uh, now, you mentioned the money. Well, he was 43 years of age, a single man, although he did have a girlfriend uh, who had a child, not by him. But he was regularly paid huge amounts of money, either to uh, do favours for certain very, very rich Saudis and others. So over the period of years, and he was the deputy head of security, as you know, uh, he amounted quite a lot of money. Um, and so I think from memory, it was about 400000 francs at the time which is quite a lot of money but if you're single um he, he liked to smoke he did certainly like to drink as we know so it's not a huge amount because he was paid sometimes five thousand up to ten thousand and again i don't want to delve into what kind of favors he did but it is a matter of record even his own parents said that he had uh, actually uh, gone out and done favors for people so with very rich people staying in that hotel it wouldn't take you long to amass quite a lot of money Mm. And what about James Anderman? I mean, and this is mysterious. James Anderson, death. yes. Well, again, um, he had said uh, many times to friends that if he was going to commit suicide, he would do it in the way that he did. And it's uh, independent evidence shows that he went and filled his car up with petrol, but he also he filled a can of petrol, again, independently verified by Scotland Yard and indeed the French police. And the nonsense that he said he'd been sort of shot in the head well, the actual hole in the head, it'd be very difficult to do that uh, with a gun yourself. It's actually the implosion of, of the heat uh, and the combustion that went into that. So, no, I'm more than happy. And James Anderson, by the way, on the, the night in question, had gone home earlier. He had been in the south of France in various parts, and he was a member of the paparazzi uh, who particularly uh, looked to Diana, but he'd gone home and it's proven that he had a motorway ticket showing that at about 3 a.m., 3.30, he was on the motorway going to an airport because he had an assignment uh, in Corsica and there was a plane ticket and he was on the plane manifest. So again, this shows what nonsense. And it was McNamara, the ex-chief superintendent from the Met, who came up with some of this nonsenses. And he would do whatever his, his master bidded. And sadly, he's dead now, so he can't challenge. But I've challenged him, and I've challenged him publicly, and nobody sued me yet. Do you think that and there's we, a chance this man, Anderson, was the driver of the Fiat Uno? No, not at all. The driver of the vehicle, and I'm 100%, and I've said this for many years, was uh, Lee Van Tan, who was a security guard at a Renault factory, who was entitled to a break out around that time because he started work at 7 a.m., he was the one the very morning after the accident painted his car uh, red and you can see the marks. He was also identified by two French people, very educated, two uh, husband and wife who saw him driving uh, with a big black dog in the back who had a bandana around its neck. And guess who had a big black dog in a white Fiat? But this fellow. So no, 100 percent. And even Lord Stevens now agrees with me. And I was saying it years before he did. Why the French cocked it up? I don't know. And that's a question I would ask. Why didn't they take better samples, etc., and interrogate him better? But I don't know. They did arrest Lee Van Tan, but I, I stand by that. And, and you again, think, you, the, think, you think the, if it did, if the Uno came into contact with the Mercedes, it was a consequence of the accident yeah, in progress? It, it wouldn't. Even that would not have caused it. What it would do was to show somebody who's driving over them, it would put you off uh, driving. And I'm a, a retired advanced driver. I was a both as a constable and, and, and back as a superintendent, I did courses. And what I'm trying to tell you is, you drive at 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, as he was doing, it's alleged, and then somebody hits you, it'll put you off. Now, it's bad enough, and I've done defensive driving with BMW and others, you know, where you drive 100 miles an hour, and, 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 and you deliberately drive into things. I can assure you, even with uh, being sober, just a small deflection of that will put you off. 
Now, when you're sober and you're trained, you can deal with it. But he was neither sober and neither was he trained. And in fact, in fairness to him, he never expected to have been driving. It's only because nobody said no. And what is important is, is Diana never intended to be in Paris that weekend because uh, she intended to be away in Vienna with her friend, the handbag uh, uh, designer, Lena Marx. So it was very much a last minute uh, request. And as I've, I've told you and I've done over the years, this study, in fact, I'm just producing a history of attacks in Europe. In the Victorian days, you know, you take time to plan this. If you look at any anarchists or any uh, normally, they take time to plan it. Now, for anyone to take this length of short time to plan this, particularly when you're being followed by people taking photographs, beggars belief, even if mm. you believe, you know, the foundation of the story, which I simply don't. Okay, well, and this seems... idea that they were they were engaged and he'd bought a ring. No, well, let me deal with the engagement nonsense. That's another bit of lie, which was proven by the Paget report that they hadn't gone into uh, the Raponzi jewelers in Monte Carlo. The three bodyguards or protection officers paid all said that never happened. They never sent a ring because they never went there in the first place to Italy to have it remeasured, and that was proven because Dodi. Uh, went into the Raponzi jewelry, uh, just very nearby to the Ritz, and actually chose from a ray of rings. So all the nonsense that they'd chosen a ring, and so on and so forth. I've no doubt he may have given her, I was going to give her a ring, that's why they went back to the Elise, where they had the apartment. But again, nobody expected them to go back to the Ritz. They were going for dinner in a restaurant. And because there were so many paparazzi, so just before eight, they cancelled that, and went back to the uh, to the Ritz. So nobody, <laughs> if you're going to plan this, you've got to actually know the routes, timing and all the rest of it. Well, nobody knew it until very, very late. And it was only Fired himself who decided on the devious tactics of going through the back way. But Henri Paul, as you know, or may know, went out and said, catch me if you can to the front people. It was complete illogical what he did and the way he drove. But uh, clearly he had had some drink. He even had two Ricards, as it's known, a licorice-based drink, actually, while they were waiting to decide on what the plan would be. Um, so if you put it all together, it just amounts to very little, in my opinion. It seems crazy also to leave the Ritz. Um, why, why couldn't they borrow a toothbrush and stay the night there? Well, absolutely. <laughs> you're absolutely right. And it's, it's, it's a fantastic place. I haven't actually been there myself. Uh, I have in London, and that's pretty good. Um, so the equivalent. No, you're absolutely right. And if you take all these apart, as I have, and I, I've read the Paget report, all 878 pages of it so many times. Yes, of course, there are areas you think, well, why didn't you do that? But if you take it as a whole, and of course, Lord Stevens took great umbrage when he was then alleged to be part of the plot, um, you know, and to, to think that all these various professionals, both in this country and others, would all team together. Um, and the other factor is she'd been happily going to marry Hazrat Khan, a Muslim, uh, albeit from a very different part of the world, Pakistan. Nobody cared about that. So nobody was, <laughs> nobody's even suggested that anyone would plot to kill either Hazrat or her for that. And I can go through all of this. Uh, and again, I was in charge when that so-called letter went to Mishkan Duray. And again, my uh, commissioner and then the assistant commissioner. This is Diana's was, letter, isn't it? When yeah, Diana said she was yeah. worried that somebody was out to get her. Yeah, and again, she got that all wrong because she was going through a paranoid uh, time. And even William acknowledges that she was paranoid at the time. And again, she got that all wrong because she alleged it wasn't Camilla. It was Teggy Lee Burke, the old nanny. So again, if you actually disseminate it, and the truth is, Mishkan Duray and the commissioner, Lord Condon, as he is now, and my boss, Sir uh, David Vaness, all decided on the evidence that it was Diana being Diana, as she was in that particular time, very sadly. And again, one of my former sergeants, he then set up a private company to actually uh, debug places. And he went there three times, as I understand it, gave her phones and all kinds of things. And again, there was no evidence to show that any bugging was taking place. And let me deal with the issue, well, the British government were peed off. With it. it was a junior minister called Lord Howe, who subsequently became a senior minister under Thatcher. He called her a, a name and said she was a, a, a loose cannon. But that's the only evidence that anyone has said anything. 
about her activity with regards to minefields. So no, uh, nobody has persuaded me. And as I said, I've spent half a century investigating from home and all around the world doing strange cases. I assure you, in my professional opinion, on anything that's dear to me, this was an accident, 100%. Well, that's brilliant of you to share your knowledge. Thank you for coming back to uh, round yeah. two with us. Appreciate it. Well, round three, if you like. I like a fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I think it's 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 very interesting to have this balance to, to, to what we were being presented with before. And, I mean, Richard Tomlinson's claims that the MI6 assassinate people, are those, again, pretty dubious? Well, very dubious. And Tomlinson himself, with all huge respect to himself, as you know, was jailed for breaking the Official Secrets Act. And in his first book that he wrote, or the first memorandum to that book, no mention of this at all. Yes, some uh, very low down had suggested, not Slobodimovic or whatever his name was, but another that they could use a strobe. But the accident reconstruction of the accident at the Alma Tunnel showed, both by the French and the expert British uh, vehicle examiners and accident examiners show the accident would have happened with or without a light. It was going to happen before he entered because of the speed and the distance and so on. The other factor, I would say, if they'd been wearing seat belts, this was survivable. And how could anybody judge whether they were going to wear seat belts or not? Why they didn't is beyond me. All right. Well, I think we should probably leave it there, Andrew, because we've got to cram two other interviews into this program. <laughs> It's going anyway, to be a bumper edition, a bumper edition die. But I actually look forward so to listening. I, well, I do enjoy your uh, cast, and I, I enjoy and share your cynicism on occasion. Well, thank you so much for your time again, and I, I, I hope we'll uh, look forward to getting you back for round three. <laughs> Cheers, Dan. Okay, sir. Thank you. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye, Di. Bye, bye. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us um, to talk about Le Carre in your second book on him. And I suppose my first question is, why did you feel you needed to, to write a second book? Well, there were quite a lot of things that, uh, when I was writing my biography that was published in 2015, that uh, David Cornwall, that's John Le Carre's real name, didn't want me to include. And um, these were mostly, but not entirely, connected with his personal life, which he had warned me, to be fair to him, at the outset um, was going to be a problem. Um, uh, I didn't realise how much of a problem <laughs> it would be um, or the scale of the thing. Um, uh, and as I progressed, um, uh, David became increasingly agitated about what I would write and things reached a point where it seemed sensible for his eldest son, Simon, to intervene. Uh, Simon came down to visit me at my house in Bristol, where I'm speaking to you from now, and um, we spent a day together. And he uh, recommended that I keep a secret annex of material for later publication, and that secret annex is the core of this new book. Sounds very Le Carre language, secret annexes, it, it and does, meetings. And, I mean, it's... I'm very jealous, actually, that you had the chance to work with one of my favourite ever writers. But it must have been quite odd to set out to write a truthful book about somebody who is written about liars and was kind of a liar himself. Kind of a liar. He was a self-confessed liar. He said he said on more than one occasion, I'm a liar. Born to be a liar, raised to be a liar, trained to be a liar in the service of my for my country, and and then practicing as a, a novelist who, after all, writes fiction. So um, yes, he was a, a, and as I discovered, also a liar in his private life. Um, so yes, I mean, uh, and I always felt um, that he was uh, at least um, one step ahead of me. Um, I hasten to add. So um, uh, I've just heard the doorbell ring. Is that a problem? Not at all. Uh, Answer if you like. Uh, well, I'm just worried that nobody else will. Uh, what, can we, what can we do? Can we stop the... We can, we can stop. Well, if it, I usually just carry my laptop with me, but you maybe you're not on a laptop. Uh, I am on a laptop, but it's quite a long... Uh, pause pause for a moment. Let's we'll pause and we'll yep. edit this little bit out. Okay. Thank you. Oh, my God, I hope it's not a hit, man. You survived. I'm so sorry about that. No, we said it would be a tr it would be a very appropriate kind of Lacare twist if you left the room and just didn't come back. Yes, uh, I, I, uh, alas, it wasn't anything very exciting. It was simply the dreaded Amazon. 
um, one of the penalties of you know, working at home. Um, so do you saying well, you're saying he was a liar, liar in his private life. And I mean, in some ways, justification for this book is it does give us a new insight into his writing, really, that the man, uh, I mean, you, 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 it's a, it's a wonderful study of a, of a relationship between a biographer and the subject. Yes. Um, well, there are two, if I can unpick that, I think there are diff- different points there. There's, um, uh, it's certainly true, I think, uh, that his, um, a clandestine life um, um, uh, acted as a kind of fuel for his writing and an inspiration for his writing. And he said over and over again that um, uh, he needed to have this kind of stimulus. Um, in a way, he was playing at spying. You know, the life of a writer is not a very interesting life, as as uh, uh, you both know. Uh, um, um, but uh, even more, I know... Um, you sit at home and and um, in front of your laptop, and then um, occasionally are interrupted by <laughs> delivery drivers. Um, uh, uh, so, and I think David missed the excitement, um, both the excitement of operational life, but also the excitement of knowing things that other people didn't know. The secrecy. I think he 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 he, he often said to me that one of the things that most appealed to him about um, first, he was first with MI5 and then with six, but, uh, but but right from the start with MI5 was that sense of being um, part of a, um, a a brotherhood that that knew things that other people didn't know and knew what was really going on was the implication. And I suppose having a a secret life, a secret private life, is also a bit like that. Mm. You you know you have a life that nobody else knows about and. Um, I guess the, the difference is though you're not you're not betraying your country. You're betraying your wife. You're betraying your wife. And, and did uh, she? And how aware or even complicit was she in these betrayals? Do you know? I know to some. I know it to some extent. She she was she was generally aware that there were things going on. She didn't know the details, and um, she was upset by it. Um, for example, um, my friend Nicholas Shakespeare told me that uh, he was present back in. The early 1990s, during a um, when they um, at an embarrassing scene where she suddenly burst out, "I don't want to spend your birthday with you if you're going to be thinking about her," um, whichever her that was at the time. Um, uh, at, at at a late stage of writing my 2015 biography, David arranged for me to have a private interview with Jane, his wife. Um, he he um, ushered me into her presence at their house in Hampstead and then went for a walk on Hampstead Heath, leaving the two of us together. And I don't know which of us was the more uncomfortable about um, being... But to have a conversation about his, his infidelities. Um, wow. Wow. And she, she clearly was embarrassed by this, and I was too. Um, and it felt to me as if she was coming out with lines that had been carefully rehearsed by the man who was walking on the heath. In fact, I, I felt as if we were both puppets um, being manipulated by by the, the master spy, you might say. Uh, it's, it's and did very, the lovers feel they were... The lovers, did the lovers uh, feel they were manipulated? They said, several of them referred, uh, used that, the term that they felt they were being run like an agent. And he, I mean, that's the other curious thing about it all, is that he used all the tradecraft that he'd learnt um, working for uh, five and six um, uh, in the course of his private life. So he used codes, cutouts, dead letter boxes, safe houses, and, and indeed referred to them as such. Um, so, for example, he asked various friends to act as cutouts where they would receive post um and um and and keep it for him until he picked it up so that it wouldn't arrive at the house and and, and, and the incriminating letters wouldn't be sitting on the um uh, popping through the letterbox at home um that was just one example um some of them were were quite very curious i mean for example he always booked into hotels under assumed names though um Nobody knew who Cornwall was, and um, it was, I mean, one of the advantages of having a pseudonym is, is it, it makes you anonymous. But then you make the point that when he met famous people like Freddie Forsyth, he would then go and with the girlfriend and go and have a brandy and you know be very open in some ways. 
I mean, well, he was almost caught in danger. Yes, I don't think in that particular instance he had um, a huge amount of choice, and they assumed that she was his wife, and he didn't disabuse them. Um, but but no, I mean, the, uh, you, you're right. He he did like to flaunt danger, and for example, he took uh, Sue Dawson to um, a restaurant where he knew he would be seen by other writers, and he, uh, where Harold Pinter, for example, regularly went. Um, and um, I think David got a kick out of being there with an attractive young woman and being seen to be there with an attractive young woman. Um, I mean, you mentioned Sue Dawson. She's gone public on the relationship and written a book about it. Um, are, are, are there others? I mean, was was there, were others concerned about the fact you were going to write about the relationship? I mean, you've kept them very much anonymous, many of them. Yes, anyone, I, I consulted them all, um, uh, and anyone who didn't want to be identified, I didn't identify. Although, curiously, um, another two have emerged since the book went to press. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. there are a great many more as well. I mean, one of the things that's very striking is how much time and effort, not to mention um, cash he put into these affairs. Um, uh, I'm surprised he had time to write any books, really. Um, but he did say over and over again, I mean, his, his, his patter was say, you know, I, my marriage is stale. I have no inspiration, but you've got me writing again. Um, with you, I can, I, I feel I can, I'm back at my best. Um, and to a certain sort of young woman or woman, this, this was very appealing, um, uh, to act as a kind of muse, um, uh, or even, um, some kind of co-writer. Uh, so, so that was, a. That, that that was one of his, but I think there was a truth in that. I think he did seem to need that, and in fact, it's 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 noticeable that when he finally um, quit the field, his books become much less um, interesting and and um, much less good, frankly. I mean, I think it's fascinating. You, you talk about them also being muses. Um, I mean, do you think that that really was the case in terms of energising him, or was he just basically this was a great chat-up line? Sounds a bit like Picasso picking up 16-year-old girls when he's 80, saying he needs a new muse, and a surprising number of people do fall for that. Yes. I I think one reason they fall for it is that it's partly true. I mean, he was sincere at any rate. Um, who can say whether it was really true or not? I mean... Um, um, but but um, I think that at the moment he was saying that he was probably being truthful. I mean, who can? How do we know? We yeah. I, we can't look inside his head. It's just my sense. Um, the last woman I know that he was involved with, who was more than fifty years younger than him, and who had been married and has children, told me that her relationship with David was the most important in her life. Um, wow. Uh, uh, so that gives you a sense of it. And and she, I've talked to her great, and she chose not to be named as much of a fact. I mean, he uh, must have been great company, you know. Uh, he must have been oh, a charismatic person to have in your life, I there, imagine. There's no question of that. I mean, uh, I can easily see what, I mean, it, uh, actually, um, Nicholas Shakespeare um, uh, says of him that he was like Bruce Chatwin in this sense. It, it didn't really matter whether you were a woman or a man or an ocelot. He had to seduce you. Um, and, and if he wanted to make you love him, he could easily do that. And I certainly um, felt um, the charm of his, his his presence and often had to pinch myself and say, we're not really friends at all. And um, probably as soon as you walk out of the door, he'll go, you know, to Jane. Or, or um, uh, he. Uh, and I found out later he did say rude things about me to other people. But then I, I, I knew he would. Um, and he said that, that that's one of the least attractive of his qualities I found was that uh, he he bad mouths almost everyone. Well, everyone. Um, he bad mouths um, his agent, his editor, his publisher, his. Um Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, his wife, his children... Um, you know, even old friends. Um, and, and to me, I, I was I was puzzled by that. It didn't seem to me that that, that 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 I felt that was beneath him, and I didn't understand why he he felt the need to belittle people. And what sort of father was he? Well, uh, he felt that he was an inadequate father, partly because he had left the mother of his three children of his first marriage, and that. Um, one of them in particular, the youngest, Tim, um, he felt had suffered as a result. Um, Tim was bipolar. Whether or not that was, had anything to do with the breakup of his parents' marriage, um, we, we can't know. But David certainly was worried that, that he was and was, was, um, very anxious about Tim's condition. Um, uh, I, um, so, I mean, he was affectionate in that sense. But in another sense, um, he was rather distant. I, I mean, well, I perhaps illustrate this um, by saying I, I remember visiting the house um, uh, very soon after the birth of um, Jane's first grandchild, the first uh, child of uh, the son of his second marriage, uh, Nick Harkaway, Nick, Nick Cornwall, who writes under the name Nick Harkaway. And I, Jane was glowing with pleasure and I congratulated her and she was very, very happy, you know, that, that this was a, a, a big moment in her life. And a little later on, I was training to see David and I congratulated him. And he assumed I was talking about some review of this latest book. Um, he had no idea what I was talking about. It didn't mean anything to him. Oh, that's so interesting. But do you think a lot of this goes back to his childhood? I mean, the fact that his mother abandoned him, he had a father who was a con artist, not similar background to Geoffrey Archer. Uh, and this made him very difficult for him to establish relationships and to, and to feel secure in a family environment. I think all of those things, that's definitely true. It's a very, very dysfunctional um, family. Um, his mother abandoned him when he was only five years old, him and his older brother, um, and didn't come back. And he he always... he he he. he he was left with the feeling that women will always let you down, will always leave, will always abandon you. And the policy adopted was to abandon them before they abandoned you. Um, and time after time, what he seemed to do with these women is to say, I love you, you're marvellous, you've got me writing again, you're the one, my marriage is stale, come and live with me, you know, we'll make a new life, etc., etc." And gradually they would be won over. This isn't the inevitable pattern, but this is the sort of general pattern. And uh, almost as soon as they said, "Okay, I'm ready to to jump ship with you," um, or whatever the right expression is, he would rapidly cool off, um, uh, and and soon afterwards cut contact altogether. Well, it's it's listening to you talk about it. Well, you said you found him charming, and he he could seduce anybody, but he does not come across as a sort of self centered, grubby bastard to be honest but maybe that's part of it i think he didn't have i mean in this childhood um sue dawson said something which i think is very true actually um she said those to whom damage is done do damage in return i think he he didn't have real feelings or at least he didn't trust his feelings if he had them and 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 so he he was very skeptical about any kind of love or affection um, he mistrusted it, and and um, uh, I mean, he was he, he he was also very very odd with male friends. He didn't really have any friends, um, not any friends that then in the normal sense. Um, and in fact, one of the things that he uh, it was so common that it, it it too became a pattern was that if any other male writer um, criticised his work. Um, or offered constructive criticism, which is what it would always be. He would go out of his way to seduce that that that, that man's wife. That was that, that that was clearly a policy for him. Okay, so he's Bill Hayden. He's Bill Hayden from Tinker Taylor, I think. <laughs> yes, maybe he is. I don't know. I mean, it just came to me. I mean, do you? you Although somebody did said, all... your, did it change your 
pleasure in the books? Do you still read them with pleasure? This, or maybe you read them with more pleasure now you know them. You knew them well, so it's, well. It's funny you say this because it's, I'm just writing something about that at this moment. I mean, I think that I distinguish in my mind between David Cornwall and John le Carre. And so when I read a John le Carre, I still get the same pleasure. Um, uh, and I admire him enormously as a writer. Um, uh, perhaps more than most people, I don't know. Um, I certainly, and not all his books, but his best books, I think, are extremely good. Um, as a person, I think he's very flawed and, um, I'm quite, um, skeptical of his, uh, uh, um, um, I'm quite cynical about him, perhaps is a better way of putting it. I'm, yeah. I'm guessing, I'm guessing you work with him while they were making that film of Tinker Taylor, which I think uh, he's actually in very briefly. He's in all, all, all the recent films. Uh, he's, he's made it a, um, a, a sort of signature. So he was in the film of Our Kind of Traitor. He was in the film of um, The Night Manager, the television series, and then in um, The Little Drummer Girl. Um, um, he's played parts um, ranging from a policeman um, to a, an attendant at the zoo to some, a diner in a restaurant um, that sort of thing. I, I love that. I love the Tinker Tailor. Did, did he like it? Did he slag it off as well? Or did he actually like that film? I thought it was terrific. The new Tinker Tailor, as it yeah, were. Yeah, the 2015 one. Yes, yes uh, he did. I mean, one of his characteristics, which actually I rather admire, is to always be positive about the latest thing. Um, uh, I personally completely disagree with you. I don't think it's a patch on the original television series. Uh, I think it, it's um, a muddled film. Um, and I think they made some bad decisions, like, like for example, making, making Peter Gwilym gay, which I think completely changes the relationship with Smiley. I think part of the interesting thing about Gwilym, Gwilym you, you know, the book is told through Gwilym's point of view, um, and Gwilym himself is having problems with a woman that he doesn't understand, just as Smiley has these problems with Anne. And, and, and there's a, there's a kind of parallel there, which is lost if, 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 if if, if Willem is gay. I, I know it's only a small point, but it's one of many. Um, I felt that the device, for example, for identifying the potential uh, traitor of, of having these photographs attached to chess pieces mm. was, was a clumsy, you know, crude device. But, but you know, I, I'm perfectly... No, I'm, I'm happy view. to be contradicted. I'll go back to the... T- I no, love, no, the, t- I love the TV you. series well. I'll, I'm, 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 I, I, I think it's perfectly, but you know, every point of view is valid, and he he certainly in, in, uh, very much enjoyed. It. I was with him most during the sort of um, early planning of the the night manager, and I can remember, for example, him telling. I asked him who's going to play Roper, and I was stunned when he said that Hugh Laurie was going to play the worst man in the world, which is how Roper is described, the arms dealer Roper. Mm-hmm. I said, surely that's a mistake. But actually, I think it was a, a brilliant piece. Oh, of he was amazing. He was very sinister and very good. Very Charming sinister. and sinister at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, I mean, very good, I think. Um, uh, I think Tom Hollander was stole the whole thing while he was on screen, but he was on a secondary role, of course. But um, anyway, that's another point. But uh, no, David was reading the scripts and talking about them and, and, and certainly very involved um, while I was talking to him. And, I, and this is over a period of years. So I felt in some ways I got to know him very well, and perhaps arguably as well as anyone ever has done. I, I think he, as I say, I think he did. He, he was incapable of real feeling in the sense of uh, abandoning himself to real feeling. He was mistrustful of feeling, mistrustful of emotion. Um, I think that was the damage that his mother and his father, his father too, I mean, as Andrew said at the beginning, his father, well, apart from anything else, his father abused his children, Um um, sexually abused his children. So that's um, <laughs> a betrayal of trust, if ever there was one. Sure, God. And um, um, do you feel that, that in some ways, I mean, his depiction of the intelligence world is accurate or um, is it just he has a good feel for things and, and in some ways he's created a world that we we believe in but actually isn't the reality? I think that I think the latter. I think, I mean, you know, I, I'm not to know. I, I've never been in the intelligence world, but my... And I think the, the, the thing that you feel with those, the best books is that they feel authentic. And that was certainly the overwhelming reaction when they came out with the spy who came in from the cold. 
for example. I mean, people said this is an antidote to all those James is that James Bond nonsense, which is which uh, this is this is what it's really like. This is and perhaps in perhaps in in the there was an emotional truth there, even if there wasn't a kind of literal truth. But um, as uh, I think it was Dick White who said to have said to Alan Dulles, uh, you know, it's far too complicated a double agent operation ever to have worked um, in in the, in the um, the spy who came in from the cold. Um, uh, so I mean, and and uh, other people have commented that David was never really involved in a successful operation himself. Um, but I think they, as I say, they feel true, and they're true in another way. I think, in, and they they're true in reflecting some of the ambiguous feelings that um, um, Britons of a certain generation, and particularly Britons maybe working closely alongside Americans, felt about our American allies and about Britain's diminished role in the world. I think he he nails that very well. He's, he's got a very good sense of that, um, uh, a, a, a sense of um, keeping up a pretense or at least the, the, the carapace of empire, even when the empire itself is sort of disintegrated from within. Because, I mean, you made the point in the book that actually he was never a very, as you say, successful or even very high-level intelligence officer. Very low-level. Um, I mean, to be fair to him, he did uh, say that um, on more than one occasion, but he always said it in such a way as to suggest to the public that maybe he was not telling the whole truth and that really he had some more um, important role than he was giving out. He didn't. And um, I think, I mean, you can see in the volume of letters that was published um, uh, posthumously, um, him um, trying to have a role when he meets the Russian ambassador in the, um, no, I think it's in the 2000s, and it makes contact um, with, uh, uh, um, contacts with, within MI6, within SIS, um, but nothing really happened. And it wasn't, I mean... This, you know, there weren't any secrets that were on offer or 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 indeed given. Um, so um, the whole thing was a, a really a bit of a fantasy. And I mean, that's presumably why he was drawn to the secret world. I mean, he was a fantasist, and in some ways, the, the secret world gave him his material. But uh, yeah, this yeah. double life that, that he had in his private life, in some ways, came before the double life in the public life. I think. I mean, my understanding is that. Uh, one of the things that um, people, his contemporaries in intelligence, both in MI5 and in MI6, um, resented was his emphasis on betrayal. That although, of course, that you know that uh, there are the, all the cases of betrayal that we know about, that indeed um, that you wrote about Andrew uh, with Guy Burgess or um, or McLean or Philby, um, that um, betrayal wasn't so universal as he. Um, may, his books maybe suggest that it is. I, I mean, I think, of course, t- I mean, Tinker Taylor seems to me to be quintessentially about Philby, and indeed there are certain echoes of um, what really happened with Philby, um, uh, such as um, when Irena, um, uh, Ricky Tarr's informant, who first alerts the circus to the, the, the possibility that there is a mole buried deep within British intelligence, is taken back to Russia wrapped in bandages, uh, just as uh, a defector who Philby was supposed to have brought in, um, um, uh, who was awaiting for a, a British contact um, in Istanbul. Um, he was also taken back to Russia, wrapped in bandages and, and never seen alive again. Um, uh, so, and there, But there, there are all sorts of details that, suge- that, that, that suggest a parallel between Bill Hayden and Kim Philby. Um, uh, which we don't need to go into here, but I think it's clearly based on that. So did, um, did he did he know that w- once he died, you would reveal all about the sort of secret sexual side of his life, or did you were you not sure that was going to happen? Um, I wasn't sure that was going to happen, but we had. Yeah, he said he said I don't really mind what you write about me after I'm. I don't mind what you write about me after I'm dead, and and um uh. uh I so yeah he and he knew about the the plan for this secret annex um but I myself didn't really have a I, I originally thought in terms of an updated version of the a, a new edition of, of of the biography and I really only didn't proceed with that for pure publishing reasons my editor had left the publishing house that published it and 
there wasn't great enthusiasm for a new edition from the new regime, as as often happens when you you lose your editor. So I, um, at that point, I started to think of a, a, a diff- going down a different route. But I think you've made the point that actually you couldn't really have written this except in the way that you have done. It is this this dialogue that you're having with yourself uh, about the justification. I mean, you've always said in the past that you stopped at the bedroom door. Here, you've had to go slightly further. Um, yes, yes. Well, I, uh, yes, I, 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 I've gone slightly further. But I mean, as I, I mean, you mentioned that analogy, um, and it's uh, referring to Janet Malcolm and, and in the Silent Woman. Um, but I have done quite a lot of clearing of my throat outside the bedroom door, and you know, kind of um, tapping on the door before I go in, um, uh, and 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 haven't really revealed what I saw in there, um, unlike uh, some people. So, so I I I I think that um, it isn't really about what's what's behind the bedroom door as 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 the fact that something is happening behind the bedroom door, um, and that that is um, there's a relation to. His writing. If it didn't, there wouldn't be any point in in, in writing about it. I think, um, and also helps to tell us more about this very complicated man who, after all, you know, wrote continually about betrayal, and betrayal was a um, a, a guiding principle in his private life. Um, so, I uh, I didn't really um, we didn't really talk about the second half of what you. Um, said much earlier, Andrew, which is that, 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 that the book also talks about my attempts to negotiate with him uh, and, and my, the difficulties um, that we had during the writing of the book. Uh, I decided at an early stage um, that um, I couldn't hide anything from him and that this, this, I had to be frank with him. So when... Um, when I was tipped off about the existence of Sue Dawson, for example, I uh, um, I told him at a, uh, uh, after I'd met her, um, uh, 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 and 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 so on. Um, I didn't go particularly looking for mistresses, I might say. I, I came across them in the most random way. Uh, I mean, I heard about one mistress um, when I, some friends invited me to lunch in the country near Bath, or. Uh, uh, I heard about another one um, late one night at a party with, from someone I just met who said, uh, "Oh, a friend of mine's mother had a long affair with John McCarry," um, um, and so on. They, they kept popping up, um, and I'm sure there are a lot more that uh, I haven't come across. I know well, there's still time, I suppose. I mean, because you also write. I mean, for one woman, um, I mean, it really destroyed her life, and and her mother rep- remonstrated with the carry, didn't she? More than um, remonstrated, she wrote a very angry, bitter letter saying, "It is a great regret to me that she wore her ring. She he, she wore your ring until the day she died. She'd persuade this this woman who'd been his secretary, who was in love with him, who he seduced." Um, and then abandoned, but she persuaded him to buy her a ring, which she wore on her finger as if she they were engaged for the next whatever it was for thirty odd years. That's really sad. Gosh, it was very sad. And she never had a never had another, never married, never had children, never had a life really. Um, she was always in love with David, and and, and I've come across several people who um, uh, were. Well, I mean, if you if you read the the review of my book in the current literary review, I don't know if you've seen it yet, Andrew. <laughs> I haven't uh, seen it yet, sir, but I can I can yeah. imagine because that was a long, long affair. I think you can see that um, she too, that reviewer, is um, still in love with David. Um, uh, although she seems to somehow um, be angry with me, as if I was the one who had um, dumped her, not not David. Gosh. And I mean, some of these people who died. I mean, did, how did, you you haven't named them? Is that just because you 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 just don't know what they would have felt, or the family didn't want them to be named? Oh, I've named some some some. I mean, um, there's uh, well, Yvette Pierpaoli was uh, semi-public. Um, uh, he did himself write. He didn't admit to having had an affair with her, but he, he wrote about her as as he, he wrote a piece about her called "The Constant Muse." Um, and how she, um, how influenced he had been by her. She died in, uh, um, uh, in the Bosnian War. She was an aid worker and, uh, the car she was traveling in, in Albania, I think, um, crashed into a ravine and, uh, 
then there was um, another woman. In fact, the, the, the one I, I was talking about, the late night at the party, the mother of a friend, she uh, she committed suicide. Um, uh, she had a, she was one of those women who seems to get passed from man to man. It was a rather very sad story. Um, and then, yeah, another woman, Janet Lee Steve, and I do name her. Um, uh, she was known as Lisa Denise. That was a made-up name, but that, uh, that was her name. And I think she's the inspiration, well, I'm sure she is, the inspiration for Lizzie Worthington in The Honourable Schoolboy. Um, once you start to think about it, it's obvious. Um, and then um, there was Janet Lee Stevens, who was blown up in the Lebanon bomb, the one that blew up in the American embassy in Beirut, who was uh, an aid worker, very much a champion of the Palestinians, and, and possibly a CIA agent. And, and it's, it's, there's, there are rumours that she was. Um, of course, you know, what is a CIA agent? What is an MI6 agent? I mean, you know, it's, it's how long is a piece of string? Um, uh, incidentally, I mean, one is quite, it's quite, uh, uh, the, the little drummer girl, uh, the little drummer girl, the, the book that David published about the, uh, set against the background of the, um, the struggle between the Palestinians and, and the Israelis, I think holds up extremely well. It, it, uh, I mean, perhaps sadly, it's just as relevant in 2023 as it was when it was published in 1983. What's that? 40 years before. Yes. Um, uh, it's, Another great adaptation, I thought. Florence Pugh was uh, fantastic in that. Well, I agree. I think she was absolutely tremendous in that. Uh, there was an earlier um, uh, Hollywood adaptation um, where um, they insist on having a big Hollywood star, and they disastrously, a disastrous piece of miscasting. Diane Keaton was um, played the role of the uh, of Charlie. Um, uh, um, and Diane Keaton had to pretend to be a left-wing English actress, but you can see how that wouldn't work. <laughs> um, uh, and, and it didn't work. It was a, a, a total muddle of, of, of a film, um, sadly. I mean, do you think his, I mean, he's going to continue to be read? I mean, you talk about him being a major novelist, particularly for those Cold War novels, but in some ways it's the other novels which are getting attention now, partly perhaps because they weren't filmed before. But I mean, do you see his reputation rising? I mean, particularly after your books. Uh, well, I, 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 maybe not. It would be immodest for me to, <laughs> to suggest that it's anything to do with my books. I think there yeah, that with every uh, novelist, there comes a reckoning after they uh, die in the years after they die, and quite it happens quite quickly um, that um, people um, often who. Um, uh, where they haven't been truthful before, um, say what they really think. I mean, one of the things that has surprised me about um, David in the time that I've known him is how his later books have gained almost universal praise, although, in my opinion, they are manifestly um, inferior to his earlier books. Um, and, and, in fact, the last few, I think, weren't worth publishing at all. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, whereas his great books, the books of his blue period, if you like, um, receive rather mixed reviews. I think those books, I, I mean, my judgment uh, for what it's worth is that those books will survive. There'll be a sorting out and people will judge him by his four or five best books. And they'll go back to him for, for two real reasons. I mean, they're fairly obvious, I suppose. One is I, that he, I think he's the definitive Cold War novelist. Um, uh, and also because I think he is a novelist of sort of the post-imperial um, uh, uh, of, of, of end of empire <laughs> of enter end of empire yes and uh, and of the conflicting feelings that that, that caused to a generation of, of of our countrymen and 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 the difficulties in adapting to that um, what um, Blake Morrison rather neatly uh, used the phrase laureate of Britain's post-imperial sleepwalk. And I thought that was a, a, a very neat way of putting it. it really but, is. Uh, I also think that the, the Honourable Schoolboy, which in some ways is a flawed book, but has brilliant passages, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a very good book about the, the collapse of Western influence in Southeast Asia in the 1970s, uh, about Vietnam, but also about, you know, Cambodia and Laos and, um, uh, I, I think it's all there <laughs> if you read that book. Um, 
um, so um, uh, that that and and in, in many ways it's more convincing. It, it, it it's as good as as perhaps the Quiet American, I think. Um, but um, uh, you talked to a lot of people who really knew things, didn't he? Did a lot of research and had high level contacts. He did. He did, and he liked to go out into the field. Um, um, for that book, for example, I mean, he uh, he had a a very close encounter with communist guerrillas who um, he was in a taxi outside Phnom Penh in the in the country, and they they stopped and stopped him in the rain, and machine guns were pushed through the window, and uh, uh, or submachine guns, and 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 um, uh, and uh, you know, for for a while it looked pretty dicey until. Um, um, they eventually were released uh, and, um, and allowed to go back into the city. Um, but um, yeah, he did, uh, and and he, um, he he did have very good contacts, um, uh, and he 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 did do his work on the ground. Um, often he would do the research not before he started work, but towards the end uh, to confirm what he'd already um, imagined. Yeah. <laughs> God, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I had just my final question, because we are getting a little bit short of time, and it's, you, you'll have been asked this about 20 times already, I'm sure. W- if you had to come down, is he Smiley? Is he Carla? Oh, I don't think I have ever been asked that. Well, I don't think he's either. Um, uh, I mean, he's, uh, I say in my book he was no George Smiley. I mean, he, you know, he never ran a successful single, a single successful operation. Um, George Smiley is a, is a, is a master spy running and everything he, he does works. Um, and Carla is also a terrifyingly effective, um, uh, um, opponent, which is what makes the struggle between them such an epic struggle. So, so I don't think he's either. All right. Fair enough. But both, maybe. <laughs> maybe if more effective manipulating women than running aspiring. Yeah, he might. Well, he's not even really a Peter Gwillem. I mean, Peter Gwillem is a is a, a, a sort of a mid-rank, but but um, intelligence officer, but someone who's been through the wars, um, both um, metaphorically and li- literally. Um, no, you I mean he's a you know he's very much a someone who only operated at a very junior level. But in his head, what is he in his? Well, actually. Um, Somebody in America made an interesting comment that in his head, I mean, the way he behaved with these women was like James Bond. He would arrive with these women and he would, with, you know, vintage champagne, with caviar. Um, he would take them to very expensive hotels where they say, pleased to see you again, Mr. Whatever pseudonym he was using. And, you know, he would have always book into a suite. Um, uh, there was uh, so he was very much living the high life in that in that sense of James Bond. Um, he was much more like James Bond than George Smiley in his private life. That's one of the wonderful paradoxes, isn't it? That in some ways his, his private life was 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 in fact what he was reacting against. Yes, yes. in his writing. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Well, thank you so much. Amazing insights into an absolutely fascinating man and a book that I'd recommend to anybody listening or watching this. Really good yes, book. both the biography and the new book. I think that you've justified the case for for a separate book. I mean, in some ways, you've got to be grateful to the editor leaving. Yes, I, well, um, uh, I, I'm sad about him leaving, but but yes, I mean, I think uh, I, I, it enabled me enabled me to focus on these issues um, and the biographical issues, the difficulty of writing a, a book about a living person. There is an element in which the book is about the story behind the story, so it's not just about the the revelations, but it's also about the struggle to publish those re- revelations um, and and the degree to which he tried to hold me back and I was straining to go forward. Well, I do anyway, do recommend it. Thank you very much. No, it's been great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Leave you Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.